0: Welcome to Threats, a podcast from leaders about the changing sports media landscape and the conditions that threaten to undermine the traditional model. My name is James Emmett, I'm the editor-at-large at at Leaders. And
1: my name is Simon Bryden, and I'm the head of sport at CineMedia.
0: And together, we are going to be identifying the challenges keeping sports media leaders up at night
1: and alongside a handful of eminent industry guests we're going to be suggesting
0: a few ways they can sleep more easily in their beds at night okay hi simon how are you doing I'm very well thank you James. Good to have you back in the Leader's Studio. Nice to be here. We've been seeing rather a lot of each other recently recording this series which we're calling Threats uh, which is uh, quite a sinister title really we don't mean it to be uh, quite as malevolent as that. It's it's really about the um the evolving sports media landscape and the various things that are happening at the moment, this cocktail of ingredients that we have across um, the media landscape at the moment that's threatening to undermine a traditional model that sustains sport at the highest level. Um, we will introduce our first guest for the series um, shortly, but it's worth pinpointing what we mean when we talk about threats, right? And and there, there are three key ones that we've identified that we're going to talk about with our guests. Choice and price, viewing habits and Gen Z, uh, the, um, the, the thing that lots of people are focused on at the moment, and fragmentation in general. And today, for today's episode, we are going to focus on viewing habits and Gen Z. Um, Simon, what do we mean when we talk about viewing habits changing?
1: Well, firstly, James, when you talk about threats, of course, wherever there's a threat, there's an opportunity. So whilst all of these issues the industry's facing, there's also big opportunities for innovative businesses to change. But we absolutely see a change in viewing habits between... The older boomer generations used to linear television, uh, getting their heads around, and many successfully understanding the new digital landscape. But more fundamentally than that, the consumption habits of Gen Z and their appetite for full live sport versus the whole host of opportunities to consume data, clips, social media. So... There are fundamental differences now between the
0: viewing habits across all
1: generations.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to with it, be with each other across this series. We're going to be quizzing our guests together. Um, but you're a fantastic person to have in on this series because uh, I hate to use the word Simon, but you are a veteran. You're, 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 I'm you're a, not quite you're a boomer. You're bristling at that.
1: I'm not. I'm not a baby boomer, but I'm. I feel it in mind more generally you you've seen a lot of sport
0: right you've seen you've seen a lot of things
1: uh yeah, I have seen a lot of sport and I do like watching sport, but more importantly, I do feel uh, that i definitely have more of a gen z mindset than a baby boomer mindset very good very
0: good um and might i say you cut quite the gen z dash as well i mean i'm not sure if we've got visuals on this bit of the podcast but you're looking as the kids say fly at the moment simon so
1: i haven't got my sneakers but yeah i should have borrowed the kids
0: not yet um You've been um, you've been around the place, Simon. You've, you've worked at all sorts of different sports organisations and media organisations across your time in your sports industry career. You're at Cinemedia now, head of sport at Cinemedia. You're, you're in a fantastic position to be able to comment on the, the, the types of things we're talking about in this. Series because Cinemedia, you work with all kinds of broadcast organizations, technology organizations, sports rights holders themselves. What are you seeing as a general industry response to this particular threat, the threat of, of you know, shifting viewing habits? Across
1: all of those threats that we uh, outlined at the top of the, the show today, James, I think there's one thing that is important across all of them, and that is piracy. Because of choice, fragmentation, price, uh, piracy is a major threat to the sports industry. And not just from Gen Z, but from across all generations. The cost of legal media is very expensive. Uh, the choice is varied and wild. Fragmentation means it can be hard to find and not. So piracy is a clear threat because of all of those threats.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um we couldn't have you on the show, Simon, without mentioning piracy, of course. Um, and actually, we probably couldn't have you on the show without having a beer on it either. So, uh, should we should we get on with things and bring on uh, bring on our first guest? First beer of the day. First beer of the day. Well, potentially it's the first beer of the day. Who knows? Um, Delighted to have with us Mr. Reese Beer. He's he's currently SVP of Platform and Content at One Football, um, which started life as a, a scores app, really, and it is now a platform and content hub for football consumers across the world. Um, Reese joined in March this year. Um, having spent almost five years at Meta slash Facebook in all manner of sports programming and content roles there. Um, Before he joined Facebook, he was at NBC Universal, a much more traditional sports broadcasting um, organization, and he helped to set up... Peacock, the, the kind of streaming uh, service for NBC Universal. And before that, he was at Perform, a part of the original executive team to set up Zone to, to be involved in that kind of D2C strategy and building what is still to this day a really pioneering organization in DAZN. So without further ado, let's bring on Reese Beer. Reese Beer, thank you very much for being with us. You identify now, I believe, as SVP of Platform and Content at OneFootball. Is that right? Is identify the right word there?
2: Uh, I haven't used it before, but I'm happy to go with it. Okay.
0: Um, Reese, your career path just sort of takes you to sort of cooler and cooler realms, I think. Uh, personally, I think going from meta to One Football is a step even cooler. Do you also see that?
2: Um, yeah, you know... Uh, I mean, I I, I I didn't have cool necessarily on my kind of list of key criteria when I um, left Meta, but all the coolest I, people don't. Um, you know, always looking for. You know, I've been fortunate to enjoy kind of roles in some really influential organisations within the industry in, in in ultimately in different areas from agencies to broadcasters to tech platforms and yeah this was very much a kind of you know evolution of that and always really look for sort of roles where I think there's an element of uniqueness in terms of what I can do and um, and achieve and rather than sort of commodity if you see what I mean and yeah this was a business that I'd um, admired from afar for a long time I'm sure a lot of this series the discussion in terms of attention economy and um, engaging with younger audiences I think one football you know we have some really strong fundamentals and um, advantages within the space in terms of the ecosystem partnerships we have with the clubs as our shareholders the sort of position we've always had and seen with respect to the importance of first-party data you know brand safe environment which um is not always guaranteed within digital um and some great people and a great culture you know so um those were the things and um yeah, and also cool, cool. place to yeah, be cool. for sure. Yeah, so cool. it's nice to get a few trips into Berlin.
0: Yeah, I was going to. was going to ask how often are you in Berlin. Where Where are you based? Where Where are most of the One Football folks based these days? Um, all over. Yeah. So um,
2: yeah, headquartered in Berlin. Um, I'm over there about once a month, but I'm based in London. But yeah, we currently produce um, an output content in. Uh, seven languages. So uh, my team are based all over the world. So spending a lot of time on
0: VCs as well. Mm -hmm. As far as I can make out from your title, you are running platform and content. So, you know, the thing itself and what goes on it. Is that right? Um, what, what, what? you know eight weeks in so still um yeah still
2: still finding my feet yeah. but yeah so um i'm supporting all of our in-house content teams so we as i say have newsrooms producing editorial uh, video and data content across seven languages all of our social activity as well which is a great thrill and pleasure to to lead those talented teams um the platform piece is really strategic for us. So we are a publisher, but we're also a platform. So we, we have partnerships with over sort of 250 leading sort of media content providers, as well as, you know, unmatched sort of partnerships with leading clubs, uh, football clubs around the world and also players. So that really speaks to kind of the unique proposition that we have and we do see our future as a platform as effectively an intermediary between content publishers rights owners and increasingly um, creators and influencers in the football space Mm -hmm. and our audience so there is always room for you know the need for curation and for us to sort of define Um, tone and style and positioning to to ensure that our offering is relevant for the sort of target younger audience but at the same time very much focused on the platform development and um, excited to try and you know utilize some of my learnings and experience from Meta with OneFootball and ultimately platforms are two-sided ecosystems so you know our primary constituent is are our users but as I say a close second are our content partners and this is the you know, kind of real work that a platform does is in order to create that value exchange for people to bring, for, you know, as I say, individuals or organisations to bring content of all formats into our platform, um, you know, and we've got a really strong, I think, uniquely strong proposition around that in terms of access to audience insights
0: and in future revenue generation as well. Yeah. Well, it's really great to have you in, Reese. Thank you for um, coming. And thank you for coming so early in your tenure at OneFootball as well. I know it's not... Um not necessarily the easiest thing to do when you're just sort of learning your way around no, um, thanks for having me. a new role. I'm delighted you come. I'm delighted that you're at OneFootball as well, because from a purely kind of selfish perspective, I use OneFootball and I have done for some time. It is my preferred score app, always has been. And I have really enjoyed watching One Football you know it's really really good as a global football score app and live update platform but i've really enjoyed it sort of adding bits and pieces and never have i felt as a user that oh here's something else in the one football app that is completely useless to me it's always sort of quite interesting and i've been watching the journey with interest okay. so yeah great I've, for
2: you to be i here. feel like there's pressure on me now to make sure that, James that you don't mess Emmett it up yeah 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 well I'm, I'm probably i'm not your target irrelevant.
0: audience am i yeah um Right, the big one, the question du jour. What, in your view, Reese, is the single biggest threat to the traditional sports broadcast model? Single biggest threat um,
2: would be, you know, uh, an oft talked about subject within our industry is user behaviour change, um, you know, related to different demographics. So um, the sports broadcast industry, which has, you know, rocket-charged, if that's a word, uh, I don't think it is, um, the professionalization of sport over the last 25 years has been underpinned by, I'd say, older audiences. It is older audiences in the US that underpinned the maintenance of continued high and growing rights values in broadcast media. Mm-hmm. It was um, older audiences that underpinned the um, cable ecosystem in the U.S., which is now just starting to fragment, um, some of the top rights holders are not yet seeing the impact. But if you look at the changes uh, happening in regional sports networks (RSNs), you know the financial issues that many of those are having. Like that's one of the first, you know, pieces to fall. I think of that model, and is unsurprising as ultimately the sort of underlying cable base is falling by five percent a year and growing. Um, Similarly, in the rest of the world in Europe, you know, like these are older, wealthy audiences that have underpinned pay TV. That's been the main driver. Um, I can't remember who said it, but you know, boomers can't get enough. You know, millennials are potentially indifferent, and do Gen Z even know it exists? We talk about this a lot, but fundamentally, I think the pace of change is increasing. I think a lot of that ecosystem was sort of underpinned by to a degree control over production and distribution those controls and those limitations have completely disappeared and are disappearing at an even faster rate with the advances in AI that I for one am struggling to keep up with even on a daily basis you know everybody's a producer Simon and I were talking before but we you know many of us have grown up in an environment where distribution was controlled Um, and we only had access to a finite amount of content those things are gone and this is happening at a faster and faster rate all the data we're seeing is you know reaffirming this in terms of um, reduced time on linear television increased time mobile first the industry needs to you know the broadcasters are going to continue to innovate like uh, i think the kind of it's a lazy, you know, kind of description to you know to call them legacy businesses. The broadcasters are innovating. The broadcasters who own the rights in the window are going where the audiences are. Yeah. Um, they're coming up with like omni-channel, tricast distribution models. But the broadcasters value the content, you know, in that model for its ability to affect behavior change. And in the example of pay, to kind of um, dictate um, customer switching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a real threat that that the power of sports rights to do those things, to determine behavior change and product selection um, could change as this next generation come through. So I think the media side are innovating and, you know, I'm looking forward to discussing kind of ways I think in which from a rights owner side, the onus on the industry and what we need to be doing and how we need to be thinking today mm-hmm. and learning from our other panelists on the podcast as well. Sort of close second, I'd say, in terms of threats on the subject is the issue of rights packaging. Um, I think we're seeing a real absence of scarcity in terms of um, rights distribution. Rights distribution is ultimately, you know, value is, is, is created by competition. Scarcity is a competition driver and it continues to be something which is, you know, chipped away at cycle to cycle. So, I think we're in a potential issue around oversupply, overexposure, like reduction per unit inventory, which is sometimes missed in terms of overall values
0: going up. Um, You can never go back, can you? Once you've made something available. Yeah,
2: that's what they say about it, isn't it? You can't add it back on, Mm. haircut. Um, (laughs) um, So, yeah, you know, that combined with. If you look at the macroeconomic climate, like, I think we're going to see more consolidation in terms of, you know, I think there's more consolidation to come in American big media. You know, there's a number of sort of loss making, you know, emerging businesses that ultimately are going to be looking for, you know, future corporate transactions and things like that. So I think, you know, the combination of potentially, you know, the number of competitors, particularly as tech brings in more like you know single party global offerings such as apple's recent forays similarly with amazon those you know from a structural point of view oversupply you know losing that ability to deploy scarcity and potential reduction in number of competitors due to globalization um, are potential risks as well and you know it's conversation for another day but a lot of this seems to sort of from my observation at least seem to come down to sort of structural issues with you know the ability for for some sports to be able to work collaboratively mm-hmm. um, instead of just racing for supply and to increase
0: volume. Loads there Reese, and you've painted a stormy picture I think there's threats everywhere. Um, Simon it's ticked off pretty much every every threat we've got there is there, is there anything you wanted to dig into out of that list?
1: Yeah, you know, I agree 100% I think uh, the fight for eyeballs is intense. There is so much available content. We really do live in a golden age of content accessibility. And uh, how you capture that, I think, is up to businesses like Reese's in terms of quality of offering, the ability to offer something better, different, and to stay ahead. I, I think, you know, when I started streaming 220 days of live cycling, Netflix were still delivering DVDs in the post and the industry really I think moved very slowly to the position that it's reached now and it's trying to fight with that business model of OTT and direct-to-consumer and I think there's a new business model coming now and they're probably not on the case of where it needs to move to next so it's a great opportunity for for new businesses, uh, new technology to come into the market and capture the next fashion that's going to come. And quite often, big corporations are not nimble enough to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. We're in a golden age for content, but of course, gold isn't worth so much if it's absolutely everywhere. Um, And spending is limited. People's wallets are pressed. And as
1: we've discussed, choice is everywhere.
0: I'm interested in this point that Reese made um, early on in his litany of threats um, to the traditional broadcast model. And that is the difference between the generations that are consuming sport now very broadly, um, you know, boomers, millennials, Gen Z. And the differences with which those generations are being served by sports media entities right um very at a very reductive level you know take an organization like sky here in the uk sky sports they have got a cash cow um in the kind of boomers and uh surrounding generations that are used to consuming their traditional products and paying a premium for them don't really want to consume anything different sky needs to maintain that while also finding different ways of serving younger audiences, different ways which potentially undermine the model that they are serving the boomers with, right? That is happening and has been happening for um, some time. Every media company is is looking at different generations and what they want. Obviously, there's a big preoccupation with Gen Z right now. Hasn't that always been the case though? Like across, you know, both of your sort of time in the in the sports media industry. The generations are viewed differently. There's not just like, here's a sort of, um, you know, a mass of sports viewers. Here's the offering that we've got for them. Is that not something that's been going on for a while?
2: I think it has been going on a while. But, you know, um, I'd come back to the point I made, I think, about the pace of change in um, in. The market for production and distribution, which and the degree to which it has been controlled, um, I think you know, twenty years ago, as we started kind of entering like video distribution through internet and mobile, it's it, it's a similar thesis, but it's one of those um, you know kind of the pace of change is just is just so rapid right now, and I think the injection of ai into this in terms of the difference it can you know the changes it will drive in terms of ease of content production um the challenges it's going to provide in terms it's going to bring in in terms of like what protection of ip looks like in this um market Mm -hmm. is different you know and you know i think this is the first generation who have grown up on a mobile first you know truly mobile first environment and i don't think we'll be Talking about it in 15 years, saying haven't we been talking about this for ages? Um, and hasn't it always been the same? I think that 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 this is going to be different, and the way that these younger audiences want to consume is is going to change things permanently. So yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and it's not just a question of people getting older and graduate and you know, having more disposable income and graduating to more traditional pay models when they can afford them. Um. I mean no is 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 fine the, as a response. I think no it's things, whether they're going to want yeah.
1: to consume right. it like on a pay model. Yeah. I you know will Gen Z want to watch an hour and 50 minute live football match the way it's currently constituted or do will they want to go highlight by highlight uh you know sport like cricket is ideal to take it event by event you know highlight by highlight rather than just a linear process of here's six hours of a test match mm-hmm. so can broadcast media you know invigorate test cricket by the way it's delivered as a live experience mm-hmm. I don't know the an- answer to that but it seems to me that you, you know the audience it, it wants uh, a lot of content varied content. Uh, but of course what it wants it is as close to possible live in, in experience mm-hmm. but it doesn't want to wait through the boring bits mm. that's me speaking personally
0: yes yeah what do you what do you enjoy watching now simon what's the what's the sort of new thing a new media product that you have really enjoyed engaging with in sport oh,
1: um on my phone i pretty much have a subscription to all the key platforms for UK sport. I engage on a daily basis with MLB's application for free access to clips, highlight data. And uh, you know, that was the first thing I did this morning was I checked the scores from yesterday and they weren't good by the way. Mm. And uh, that diminished my desire to watch the low lights or <laughs> I love that application, I love it. Uh, uh, ability to clip and present data uh, which it now does instead of a highlights reel it now does it as a story mm. so mlb have changed from here is a three minute linear video it's now presented uh, instagram tiktok style as a story where you just click clip to clip so they've even upgraded that and I, I i it took me a bit of time to get used to it to just sitting down and watching the three minutes mm. but i now See why they've done it, and I very much like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I find I, I watch hardly any sport now compared to what I used to. Um, but, but I consume the same probably um, amount of time of media. I listen to podcasts about sport now because I find that suits my incredibly busy lifestyle better. Um, but that is that that is sort of uh, a symptom of kind of shift in model, right? That's fan media. I, I listen to authentic discussion around the sports that I'm interested in more readily and for longer than I would consume official kind of live rights or highlights packages I mean again I'm sitting right in a demographic that is not a target audience for anyone but maybe an interesting sign of where things are going
3: I'm Max Barnett from Delta Tray.
4: And I'm David Cushnan from Leaders.
3: And in Season 1 of The Blueprint, our podcast series on strategic thinking in sport, we chatted with strategic leaders from the Football Association, Formula E, Seattle Sounders, New York Jets, New York Yankees and Sky Sports
4: fascinating in-depth conversations with people at the heart of conceptualizing, executing and delivering on strategy. And great news Max, we've got a second series, we're going to have another set of conversations and this time we want to dig into the heart of great strategy with people who are deep in the weeds of doing it day in day out.
3: Yeah DC and if season one was very much around the why and the what and some great conversations there, second season is really getting into the how of how people are executing strategy because it's often not publicly shared and uh, we're not really seeing the day-to-day in terms of the execution.
4: So we're putting the call out to you, the sports industry. If you know someone who is doing this stuff brilliantly or differently, let us know. David.cushnan at leadersinsport.com or at David Kushnen on Twitter or via either of us on LinkedIn.
3: And join us soon for Season 2 of The Blueprint. We're looking forward to it from Delta, Trey and Leaders.
0: What about you, Reese? What are you What are you either consuming or putting out there yeah. um, th- that you consider to be a, kind of an interesting and successful new model for for engaging new audiences?
2: Um, I think the thing that I'm really interested in professionally and you know personal consumption as well is I think this crossover between sport and and wider um, youth culture
0: mm-hmm.
2: is playing out interestingly. I think. NBA and have always been a bit of a kind of beacon in this area given basketball's connection with kind of US youth culture and um, fashion, um, sneaker culture and things like this. I think it's this kind of crossover audience opportunity We've been watching the Kings League very closely in terms of like, you know, format innovation in football. Yeah. You know, there's still a lot of scepticism in terms of some people sort of see it as a bit of a gimmick. You know, yes, a lot of the teams are made up of kind of, you know, top amateur players, if you see what I mean. They're not at the same level as as league players. But there's so much to learn from what, you know, Gerard Piquet and I think the company's Cosmos or that was maybe the tennis brand are doing there. Um, you know, the role of influencers... To fish where the fish are in terms of those younger audiences, um, combined with star talent in terms of Aguero, um, Neymar, th- th- these are driving huge traction within the existing football audience and then within the influencer audience as well. It's a huge success story, like driven by Twitch. Um, you know, peak concurrent viewership above a million. That means it's it's there, right? It, this is a this is a serious product with traction and i think one of the most interesting things was you know recently they announced started announcing linear tv deals but they've protected you know they're giving broadcasters rights but you know they're not doing exclusively it's like you know we're protecting our twitch audience and king's league was the the top football league property on TikTok um in january you know ignore it at our peril in terms of some of the things that they're doing you know there's so much to learn um from a one football perspective my early thoughts on it are you know we're called one football this is a format of football if you see what i mean mm-hmm. um and we're you know very focused on personalized user experiences so there's a lot of strong feeling against it but actually like our vision for the app if you see what i mean is that whether you're uh, you know a huge fan of women's football whether you're a huge fan of Champions League, you know, Latin American football or in, or or for these audiences in terms of around Kings League, you know, that we can personalise the experience to make it relevant. So if it's not for you, it's not for you. Um, but I'm loving that. And I think it's kind of synonymous with what we're seeing in terms of Ted Lasso effect, like Wrexham. Loads of interesting things there in terms of crossover audiences broadening into entertainment. Yeah. And I think the sports rights owners that are doing this well are seeing... That they've got to kind of engage that through music at events, through, you know, like the Cheltenham Festival this year, looking at kind of just adjusting dress code requirements and things like that, making it much more accessible. Um, and this is what a lot of US events have been doing for a long time. Um, you know, like the Kentucky Derby or Derby, as my American colleagues instructed me to call it. You know, this is a it's a fashion event as much as it is a sports event. Yeah. And seeing a lot more of that in Europe. And
0: I think that is a smart way to yeah. go sort of broadening and deepening the fabric of the experience in order to attract different types of people to it right um really interesting example i think there with the king's league with the with Jared pk's uh under the radar smash success i would say mm. um, have a few more high profile uh, ventures that uh less were successful not, but that's what they say no, about. yeah but you've got to throw stuff against the wall Fast and see fail, what, yeah. yeah yeah um Elsewhere in this series, we have, um, depending on the publishing schedule, either heard from or will hear from Sharon Fuller, um, who's now at the NBA but spent um, a good number of years um, running content for Red Bull. And she made, or will make, a similar point about the possibilities inherent in starting your own thing. Like You start a new sports entity. And then you have a blank sheet of paper available to you for the kind of media distribution of that. Clearly, this has happened with Cosmos's uh, Kings League as well. You are not bound by what's happened before, you know, in terms of the what the media production and distribution looks like. You ran through the smart stuff that PK's lot are doing with Kings League. Is it even possible for a more established football league? To do something like that, you know, League R, would they be able to rip things up and come up with a kind of twitch first strategy and and that kind of thing?
2: Um, a I question think, for both. Of you, I think I format innovation for existing football bodies under the FIFA umbrella, if you see what I mean, is obviously uh, limited, right? Uh, you can't change. They're not going to be changing the length of the match anytime soon. Size of the goalposts. Um, you know, format for ending games. Could have know. people
0: wearing masks There, they could probably <laughs> bring that in. That was I, I enjoyed that.
2: The, yeah. the, I mean that yeah the mask the masked um Chicorito is yeah. like brilliant. Like that's like crossover with mask singer if you yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like the, it's amazing you know, yeah. go, go and borrow things that are working elsewhere. Yeah. Uh yeah like that stuff less so from a consumer experience perspective if you look at you mentioned Sharon and the NBA the, la- the recent NBA launch, which got a lot of profile with Adam Silver inserting himself as an avatar into the match. Yeah. Like, that is so cool. Like, they've always been like, you know, I mean, Simon mentioned MLB. Absolutely. Like, they, and, and MLB were those guys, weren't they, Simon, 20 years ago when many of the audience were probably still at school. um, But, you know, that was who we looked at and they created an amazing business in MLBAM. Yeah. Um, it gets a bit boring to quote the NBA all the time, right? But you ask about A European federation that, you know, they they held a B two B comms event that looked like an Apple product launch, right? Adam Silver inserted himself into a match. They announced new features on their app that was so full of customization, the ability to change commentator to include influencers and celebrities. Um, They included the ability to select the level of graphics and data led enhancements that you want into your feed. Um, They are offering a product which enables you to um, view the match as if it's streamed into a different location with their ad boards retained. Can um, existing properties in in Europe and in in football do more? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I was just so impressed. I continue to be so impressed by that um, appetite for innovation. Yeah. And, and, and boldness of their approach. It's amazing
0: that the NBA can do that and continue to do that even though they are one of the big, biggest revenue-generating sort of sports media entities in the world. You know, they're not uh, encumbered by the fact that the model is working for them. Yeah. You know? I mean, it probably comes back less to,
2: like... The ambition or the ability of the people in these organisations, frankly, because I, you know, we we know many of them, and they're and they're all brilliant, and many of them are brilliant. Yeah. The interesting thing is, it probably comes back to like structure of leagues, like you know, the sort of closed league system in the US and the much kind of um, the much lower risk financial structure and their ability to invest in the product. Yeah. Like you know, we talk about it a lot, but like football can be sometimes look like it's sort of is trying to grow despite itself in terms of the, you know, the leakage of um, of top line revenue, the, the, you know, the small, how small the margins are. Um, and I think you see that in terms of like, you know, the the way the US leagues innovate and that we, we don't see it as much here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're seeing uh, NBA is a well-known case and we've looked at that in detail. I think we're seeing baseball really this season trying to speed their game up enormously. The timer clock, They have been faced with ever longer games and they know they need to do something to increase the tempo and the pace of the game. And I think, uh, you know, having watched this year, I think they're really, they're they're doing that well. And obviously we're going to see continued disruption around pace of play. I mean, golf has got its own unique problems, but there is that problem that the intensity of a golf match is, you know, that last three hours on a Sunday. That's what the audience cares about really. And uh, so I think golf has to try and address that, and I don't think they're anywhere amongst what they're doing at
0: the moment, getting close to a solution. Mm-hmm. The last, well, yeah, the last four organisations you work for, for: one football, Meta slash Facebook, um, NBC, and DAZN. All organisations with. Um, very different sort of strategic outlooks when it comes to their approach to sports uh, rights and distribution. All organisations, I guess, with very different appetites for change generally, Um, but nevertheless fascinating organisations in terms of their appetite for change and where they would consider themselves in terms of being a disruptor to the industry. What, I mean... I haven't prepped you for this question. <laughs> what were the different... What were each organization sort of worried about? What were the different threats for those different organizations? And, or was it just the same, the same thing affecting all of them? For example, with Meta, I mean, you must have got bored by the amount of times early on that you were asked to, you know, <laughs> when are they going to buy X and X, you know, such and such a, yeah. a live right. Not as bored as I was Never. by the requests to uh, help on people unlock their accounts. Sure, <laughs> um,
2: I'd, I'd probably you know it's easier to group to zone NBC Universal and, and and to a lesser degree one football together. Yeah, um, you know
0: they are because they're all in on sport, right? Yeah, yeah. They're,
2: and they're, they're they're sort of I mean we're one football now. We're we're, we're probably more of a tech product-led organisation where content is key but still very media-related organisations. Um, the main thing during my time at Perform Group and um, subsequently DeZone was an appetite for direct consumer and that created the ultimately the split and the The movement of the perform group business into the stats perform merger or acquisition I can't remember what it was and then the creation of Dazone. so we were traditionally a very predominantly b2b business the appetite very clearly was in direct consumer um, and that was where we sort of had our sights set those two businesses have actually then gone off in in two different directions and with the benefit of private investment, have really innovated so strongly. Um, there's enough discussion around the zones' finances and and future that you know I don't need to add to it here today. But what what I would credit them with, if you see what I mean, is that in the early days and con- continuously, they've never bulked on product investment in terms of you know capability to support across different screens you know quality and innovation in many ways and also with stats performing the data companies like the injection of private equity has enabled them i mean that is it's the that you know the quality of their offering these days you know and is 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 radically different to what it was 15 years ago um so both benefits both companies have benefited from investment there um the big theme at NBCUniversal universal when i was there was you know we were it was, i joined in sort of Mid 2010s was Netflix seemed to be taking over the world. Um, the growth of SVOD, the st- key strategic question for organizations like that, especially with big studio businesses, was arms dealer or tank builder, I guess, if you see what I mean. And, you know, they've got some very smart minds in terms of looking at those things. I think all the big studios and media groups, with possibly the exception of Sony, have decided that they need to be in the direct consumer space. NBC Universal still have a huge licensing business, um, but are invested heavily in Peacock now on a direct consumer basis, as all as are all the big American media companies. And we were doing some of that in NBC Sports as well, with like what started off as NBC Sports Gold, which was a subscription premium uh, premium tier, which we offered internationally and in the US, where we started offering additional EPL matches, now folded into Peacock. Yeah, that was probably the big one of the big conundrums we saw there. Um, Meta, different. Um, this is a organisation across its apps that has contact with three billion monthly users, um, so is not as existentially sort of dependent on access to content or its strategy regarding kind of con- content as we see it to determine the future of those products. If you see what I mean, much much broader, very very much product led organisations. You know, highly data-driven does not even begin to describe um, what they are. And um, content has a role, but is not as central.
0: And now, one football, where you're, you've got all sorts on your plate. Yeah, yeah. Um, Simon, we've got time for a couple more. Is there anything that you wanted to put, Therese?
1: Uh, and you've had a fantastic career in the sports business. Where do you think uh, Facebook, it always comes up, obviously, people's content is being pirated and is on Facebook. And uh, how big an issue is that for Facebook? How did they deal with that meta? How did they deal with that? The piracy question.
2: Yeah, I mean, we did invest heavily when I was there. And, you know, I can't comment on what they're doing at the moment. But as I understand, they continue to do so. Um you know, I think content ID, the the Google system was has sort of been well established as, you know, market leading to the degree that is offered by the tech platforms. The so you know we we continue to try and roll out tools like that. Ultimately, they all require ingest of like original um, the original owned material. It's not as simple as you know as, as you know, Simon. It's not a simple um, technology solution. Like we required like original ownership effectively to then identify. What were potential copyright, you know, copyright infringements? But you know, if you then think about it in terms of you know the relationship between a, a master rights owner and then broadcasters who owns the rights in different territories, um, other sub licensing deals, you know, it's like it, it's very very complicated to get that right. That, and there's still a lot more to be done. You know, and obviously with the tech platforms rolling out different video products at different times, so we had like Facebook Watch, IGTV, we have we had stories across Facebook and Instagram, we then had Reels, if you see what I mean. So we shouldn't assume that each of those has the same sort of underlying structure. And, you know, I think piracy in this kind of next generation of production is, is a whole, is a really interesting area, right? Because we're talking about music, you know, like the key value that is being driven to music labels at the moment from social is not the right to play um, uh, a song or watch a pre-produced video. It's the right to, edit the content, to be able to mix, remix, and create with it. Um, It's not, you know, I haven't got the answer here, but um, broadly speaking, directionally, I would say if I was sat in a rights owner's seat, this is something I'd be thinking about as a new set of rights, um, which is kind of what what am I offering into the TikTok and Instagram and, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Snap production suite to enable... Content creators around the world to create content using my material, and it's a complete mindset shift. If you see what I mean, from going from protection because you know they will create, they will either create using other people's IP, which arguably is a downside, or they'll still, they'll continue, or or potentially they'll continue to steal. Yeah. So there's one new idea come
0: out of the podcast for you. I like it. Uh, I mean, and on that note, I mean, you mentioned Cosmos earlier. I wonder whether there is a particular um, deal or company or um, model in general that you are particularly interested in watching to see how it develops. Um, personally, I'm watching you, i and watching One Football and watching you know the development of One Football versus the development of Livescore, for example. I think that's fascinating to see the two kind of different directions two organisations with fundamentally similar kind of origin story have. What are you watching? Yeah, I mean, so, cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um,
2: a couple of things that, you know, we're leaning in on at the moment in that space in terms of like new monetization opportunities would be pay-per-view, which is something that we, which has not really been like broadly available within the way rights are structured. So Germany is our home market and our biggest market um, and we have some pretty well-established partnerships now with like Magenta Sport and with Sky in Germany and more recently with DAZN. And the thesis there is we generally have a younger audience across our app, you know, that potentially are not the existing um, subscription market. Um, We are driving good numbers on pay-per-view and with with those partnerships. The concern from the broadcasters, understandably, which, you know, is as our partners, um, is also our concern because it's got to work for both parties, is cannibalization risk. And we do a lot of kind of work on the data there to try and validate that this is complementary but that's definitely one to watch and then also in latin america we struck a deal with common ball which is also quite unusual because we have acquired in-game clip rights Mm -hmm. you know these are often held by the broadcaster and are often um, utilized but you know selectively because it's about maybe potentially driving um, viewership into a a live their own live product Mm -hmm. whereas we've just uh, have a rights partnership which is about that content standalone so both of those are kind of like content and rights innovations that speak to kind of this sort of new ways of that maybe younger audiences want to consume more microtransactions as they want to see the action as it arrives you know we're very fortunate to have strong app products with both android and ios and we're able to utilize the fast push notifications in a sort of buzzer style to draw attention to that so those are two things I'm super excited about on our side. Um, and then more broadly, live shopping and like social commerce is definitely one to watch. Hundred billion dollar market in China uh, just on do in, in um, China two years ago. So probably at the rate they were growing, over 150 billion now. I think it's uh, it was estimated as a hundred million dollar total market in the U.S. as well. Yeah. And I think that social commerce, social discovery piece is really interesting. And yeah, Fanatics going into that with Fanatics Live, um, hired some great people, super interested in that space. It's not kind of QVC, it's entertainment and community led with
0: shopping is, um, you know, and it's trading cards, collectibles. Yeah, so everything Fanatics touches turns to gold, it seems, as well. Um, you don't see many of these sort of wacky hardware um, deals or, or sort of innovations that, that were kind of the rage a few years ago. Do, do you remember Le TV in China? Yes. I think they came up with a, a rentable bike that had content integrated into it. And the idea was that they were going to buy rights to put into. These, these rented bikes, you know, and it would be a point of distinction for like there's loads of different bikes on the street, but the Le TV bike would have live sports on it. Um, I'm not sure how far they got with that. There, um,
2: was a, there was a very exciting moment in the Chinese rights market for for yeah. a while
0: um, in the late 2010s. There was, yeah. 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 And isn't Hel- is quite an interesting business as well? Yeah. A similar Helbit's is like a scooter business. That- I'm waiting
1: for folding technology till I can folding. Um, yeah, folding screen technology and I want the day when I can unfurl a 48-inch television out of my pocket. Here you go. Oh, yeah. folding technology there you exactly. Go. I got it. I've got it. All yeah. I need is the 48-inch yeah, yeah. Inch television
0: to be created. You want to just unravel it from your pocket. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Have the large screen wherever you go.
0: What are you watching there Simon? Beyond, you know, the um, the evolution of folding technology. Uh
1: Well, I think I touched on, I think, you know, in this day and age, I think there's a real demand among all generations for live event experiences. I think in music, we have accessibility uh, to music 24-7 on the model they've got. I think it's been invigorating for the, the live music market. I think people are looking for real life human experiences. I think that was happening before COVID and even so after COVID. And of course, that Plays into sport as well, so I, I touched on this before. I really think what a lot of clubs and and federations need to look at is the television experience in venue for those fans. You know, I'm afraid you know the large screen at one end with an occasional replay isn't good enough. I think you know our in stadium streaming technology to change completely. The, the viewing experience uh, in, in close to live, real time catch up. I think the media world now has to look after that live attendance audience as well. And I think there's a lot can be done that doesn't matter whether it's football in the stadium or Formula One where the cars are out of your, you know, there's a whole host of opportunities to increase and improve on that in stadium. And if that in stadium viewing experience is better, then I think that's good for attendances. I don't think one takes away from the other.
0: Mm -hmm. And personally, I'm looking forward to um, someone working out how to bring scarcity back to sport. That's going to be interesting to work out how to do that. Um, (laughs) Is that our tagline? Bring scarcity back. (laughs) Put sport away. Um, Yeah, maybe. Anyway. um, Bringing scarcity back could be the uh, editor's uh, ethos for this uh well this podcast it works for me certainly <laughs> um spear simon bryden thank you very much indeed